Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from San Francisco. With us today is Kent Bach, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at San Francisco State University, and he's here to talk to us about jumping to conclusions and knowing when to think twice. Kent Bach, welcome. Hi, Matt. That's one thing we'll talk about. What else? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Excellent. And possibly other things, too. So this idea that ignoring something can count as evidence in favor of, I guess, either that or something else is maybe a bit counterintuitive because you know, normally you think that if something's evidence, you're looking at the evidence, you're considering it, and you're weighing it in your mind, whether it really is evidence for something happening. So maybe we could try to motivate this idea with an example. What would be an example of, like, in not thinking about something, some other claim gets justified, or you're not thinking about something serves as evidence for something else. Well, what I have in mind with that notion of ignoring as evidence is that when you come to believe something, you base your belief on something or other, and you could conceivably consider all sorts of possible sources of evidence against whatever it is that you believe, but most of the time you don't. And so there are two questions. One is, what is the significance of the fact that you don't consider certain possibilities? And what does it require for you to consider them when they need to be considered? So take a very simple example. Suppose you're given the question, which of the following four former presidents is on Mount Rushmore? And you're given, it's a multiple choice question. And you're given the choice between Richard Nixon, Abraham Lincoln, George W. Bush, and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Chances are you'll immediately think of Lincoln as being the correct answer. That was my general idea, yeah. Was it? Oh, good for you. Yeah. Okay, you know a lot <laughs> about American history and uh, South Dakota. The, the alternatives really don't get taken seriously. As soon as you see the name Lincoln, or hear the name Lincoln, that's it. And if you think about multiple choice exams in general, when you go through them, what typically happens? Well, if it's something you have some knowledge about and you're lucky, exactly one of the, let's say, four choices will strike you as the correct one. And you'll immediately mark that off as your answer and go on to the next question. Nothing holds you back. But sometimes you are held back because maybe one of the other choices seems equally as appealing as the one that first appeals to you. Or perhaps you think of an answer that's not even included among the four. And maybe you even have that as an option under the heading, none of the above. Okay, so what's going on there? Well, you're partly relying on your ability to invoke knowledge that you have when you need to. And in most cases of you know, relatively easy multiple choice questions, you don't even bother. You take one answer to be the correct one and that's it. 
when there's some kind of doubt, then you start bringing in alternative possibilities. But there could be a lot of possibilities other than the ones that you're considering. And that list could conceivably go on and on and on. So somehow you have the ability to think of relevant possibilities or plausible possibilities when they're there. And you don't bother yourself thinking about implausible possibilities or irrelevant ones when they're not there. So um, one question arises, well, how does all this work? Well, that's not a philosophical question. That's really a psychological one. And it has something to do with how it is you access information that you possess when you need to access it. And the simple fact of the matter is we don't really know much about how that works. That's a very hard thing to study. And maybe some cognitive psychologists have a handle on it, but uh, I'm not aware of their work, and I suspect that the research has only just begun. Anyway, the philosophical point is that the non-occurrence of the thought of some possibility functions for us as evidence that that possibility is too remote to be taken seriously. That's not to say that we can't make mistakes in this area, but typically we treat the non-occurrence of the thought of a possibility as evidence that the possibility is too remote to be bothered with. And we do all of that without having to think that it's not worth considering. Because if we had to think that, then we'd be considering it. And since there are definitely many possibilities that we could at any given moment think of, if all it was required was that they be possibilities, then we'd just go nuts uh, thinking of, of them all. So in short, we managed to rule out most possibilities uh, without having to explicitly consider them. I like this a lot. I think you just explained why I'm so terrible at multiple choice tests. Oh. Because, like, I do pretty well on tests where, you know, the question is, what is the answer to this? What is the solution to this equation? Stuff like that. Why? Because, well, then I look at the question and I try to figure out the answer and, you know, usually you get it right. On multiple choice tests... I look at the the different answers, and there's always a trick, and I'm always distracted by the trick, and then I get lulled into thinking about that and considering it too much, as it were, and then I get the wrong answer. So I think that, in a way, doesn't that corroborate what you were just saying, that you know a multiple-choice test can sort of like frustrate this natural process that we have ordinarily, even when we're not doing that kind of thing, of figuring out what the importantly relevant choices are in our heads when we're considering the answer to a question. Maybe it's like part of what's happening in a multiple-choice test where you get thrown for a loop is that irrelevant alternatives are being uh, made salient to you and you're considering them when you shouldn't be. Yeah, well, if the question is a trick question, then part of what the test writer is doing is trying to throw you off and to keep you from risk relying on instinct, so to speak. That is accepting the first plausible sounding answer as the correct one. Because it may be that the question isn't intended to be taken the way it first strikes you. So that it's really not the question you thought it was. So therefore it doesn't have the answer you might have thought was the answer. Because that's the answer to a different question. But I think what you're talking about and why you seem to be not that confident in your ability to deal with multiple choice questions is that you second guess yourself too soon. Which is to say that you don't rely on your reliability at thinking of possibilities only when you need to. You tend to think of them even when you don't need to think of them, which, of course, is a 
hallmark of a good philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> but whoever said that philosophers are practical? Okay, so an important upshot then of what we've been talking about is that in order to make decisions about what to do, you have to tune a lot of things out. You have to tune a lot of possibilities out. If I want to form a belief that, oh, I hear the sound of my friend walking around in the next room and I draw the conclusion that my friend is in the next room, there's a lot of far-fetched scenarios that I have to rule out in order to go ahead and continue believing that. If I start wondering about, well, how do I know that it's not the FBI or something or whatever, these paranoid sort of fantastic scenarios, if I don't tune them out, there's going to be too much noise in my head for me to draw the correct conclusion, which is that my friend is indeed in the next room. That's a good example. I mean, does your friend have distinctive footsteps? Do these uh, footsteps sound different from the way that friend normally walks? Well, that might give you reason to think, hey, maybe a burglar is snooping around. Or maybe your friend has changed his walking style. I mean, (laughs) mean, that's another possibility. But most of the time, we don't take alternative possibilities very seriously. Now, I'm not saying that that's always good. I mean, we can exclude things that we shouldn't just as easily as we can exclude things that we should. I mean, we may be better or worse at, in different areas when it comes to knowing what to take into account and what not to take into account. Because after all, there are plenty of exceptional situations. But part of what we rely on is to detect when the situation is exceptional and to consider that maybe special measures are needed to deal with that situation. Okay, so now here's what I want to know. If we're not dealing with these cases of tuning irrelevant scenarios out, and we're just dealing with a case of, oh, here's evidence, and I want to think hard about whether it really is good evidence for whatever. It's a footprint in the sand, and I'm trying to decide, is it evidence that a, a coyote was really here? Well, it seems like in philosophy and you know in forensic science, we have sort of a method that we can follow for thinking about, like, okay, but is this really evidence for such and such? And is it really good evidence? Or does it just seem like it's evidence? And so on and so forth. And we do that by attending to the evidence and thinking about it carefully and trying to fit it in with other evidence. But it seems like we can't do that with stuff we ignore, because the moment we start thinking about it, we're not ignoring it anymore. So how can we, if I'm faced with the two options of correctly ignoring something versus incorrectly ignoring something, I can't examine them both carefully and decide which one to ignore, because the moment I'm examining them, I'm not ignoring them anymore. So is that is this pose a problem? Well, uh, take your example of the footprint. If you're like me, you don't know one footprint from another. So you're not going to rely on any snap judgment that you are inclined to make, because you have no reason to think that it's correct. If, on the other hand, you've spent a lot of time out in the woods, and you've... Uh, learn to track animals and to recognize footprints of animals of different kinds, and you see what in fact is a footprint of a coyote, your thought that it's a coyote is likely to be fairly reliable. Uh, maybe there are some, a few other animals that have very similar footprints, but maybe you're experienced enough to know uh, either those other animals aren't in this area or that further possibilities have to be considered. So you, you maybe you look more closely and maybe you can detect subtle differences between different generally similar footprints as between coyotes and two or three other kinds of animals that have somewhat similar footprints. So if you have the ability to detect those differences, maybe your initial thought that this is a coyote doesn't even have to be second-guessed because you're, you're justifiably confident enough in your own ability 
to uh, tell the difference. If not, then you should be careful enough to think of the other possibilities. If you know what the subtle differences are, you look for them. If not, then you get out a book of animal footprints and compare what you see to the examples in the book or do something to verify that what you think is actually what the footprint is, a coyote. So a lot of it depends on your knowledge about your own knowledge. That is, how knowledgeable you are of the thing you're making a judgment about. What I'm talking about are areas where somebody is basically very good at making snap judgments in a particular area. But once you go beyond your areas of expertise, then you're in trouble. So let's say that I've discovered that I'm bad at snap judgments and I want to get better. Is the answer to maybe try to develop better habits or something like that? It seems like what you want to change if you're bad at making snap judgments isn't so much, ah, this particular judgment has got to be better, but more rather like almost like preventative medicine, like in advance, cultivate better habits of tuning stuff in and tuning stuff out. Well, let me ask you a question first. When you say bad at snap judgments, you mean uh, you tend to make a lot of incorrect snap judgments or you fail to make snap judgments when you have perfectly legitimate reason to make them? Oh, nice. So let's say I make incorrect snap judgments. So if I have three minutes to think about something, I make the right decision, let's say. But if I only have 15 seconds, I'm constantly tripping over myself. Okay. Well, first of all, let's get one thing clear. Most of the time, you're making all sorts of snap judgments without even thinking that you're making them. I mean, for example, you're sitting in a chair at the moment, and even though we're in earthquake country, you're making the snap judgment that the floor is not going to collapse in the next minute or two. Um, That's a reasonable thing to assume, but you don't even consider the alternative. At least you didn't until I mentioned it. Okay, so you're making lots of snap judgments that things are not out of the ordinary, okay, about your immediate environment. When you're crossing a busy street, you don't make the kind of snap judgment you make when you're walking across the same street at 5 o'clock on a Sunday morning and there's no traffic there. But you make adjustments as to uh, when it's appropriate to uh, just take things for granted as they to be as they normally are. But when things aren't, then you have to be more careful, obviously. I'm not pretending to, to offer practical advice as to what uh, people should or shouldn't do. I'm perfectly willing to concede that some people make snap judgments too readily when they should be more careful, and other people are too uh, obsessive-compulsive to make them when they should be making them, and they worry about a lot of trivial things when there's really no need to worry about them. But the general idea I have is that not considering certain possibilities is part of what it takes for most of ordinary beliefs to be justified, provided we're good at knowing when not to take such possibilities into account. So it's really more of a point in the theory of knowledge than in the um, realm of practical psychological advice. But I can certainly say that some people could benefit by being more thorough, and other people could benefit by being a little more impulsive. So you've drawn an interesting distinction in your work between what you call thinking and believing. So thinking that my friend is in the next room versus believing that my friend is in the next room. And I think use that distinction in 
some very interesting ways to try to address philosophical puzzles we have about various strange things that arise when our sense of what to ignore or what to attend to and what not to attend to is kind of poorly calibrated. So what's this distinction between thinking and believing? Well, I think, not only do I think, I believe that everybody has innumerable beliefs, most of which are not playing any active role in one's thinking at a given moment. Okay, I mean, there are literally millions of things that you believe. And it would be very awkward if you could somehow entertain those, a very large number of those beliefs at any one time. Your mind would be very cluttered if that were the case. Nevertheless, you have all these beliefs and you can bring them to bear or somehow they come to bear when they're relevant to whatever you're currently thinking about or otherwise engaged in. I take thinking to be uh, an active psychological occurrence so that, for example, I can think that Bismarck is the capital of North Dakota right now. I think it's something I believe. I'm not even sure. Maybe it's not Bismarck. But uh, anyway, the thought that Bismarck is the capital of North Dakota occurred to me. That's an example of a thinking. I brought in this distinction originally in connection with the problem of self-deception. This has bothered philosophers since ancient times, the problem of self-deception, because the problem is how can you deceive yourself if deceiving yourself is anything like deceiving somebody else? Because if the deceiver and the deceivee are the same person, it looks like whatever the deception is isn't going to work. So how can there be such a phenomenon as self-deception? And I brought in the distinction between thinking and believing to suggest a possible solution to that problem. And that is that self-deception, unlike deceiving other people, doesn't require getting them to believe something that you don't believe. Deceiving somebody else requires getting them to believe something that you don't believe. And that's easy enough to do. You just lie. Of course, they might recognize you as lying, in which case they won't buy it. But in your own case, it can't be quite like that. Because if you intend to deceive yourself, you'll also presumably be aware of your intention to deceive yourself, in which case it won't work. Okay, so I took kind of a, um, you might call it a a reductive approach to self-deception when I wrote on this topic, because it seemed to me that it really isn't necessary to get yourself to believe something contrary to what you believe. Let's say that your son is a mass murderer, which is not the easiest thing for parents to believe about their sons, even sons who are mass murderers. But you might do other things that have the practical effect of not believing that your son is a mass murderer. You'll clutter your, your mind with all sorts of thoughts about how wonderful your son is, what a nice boy he always was. Or you'll think about something else. So what you'll do is avoid the effect that believing that he's a mass murderer would normally have by interfering with that process. And then I go into various ways in which that can occur. So it's, what's relevant here is your thinking uh, processes, not what you actually believe. So you could really believe that he's a mass murderer, but not consciously accept it. And that would be one possible outcome. Okay, great. So the difference between thinking 
that my son is a mass murderer and believing that my son is a mass murderer is as follows. If I think that my son is a mass murderer, that's an event that takes place in my mind. Like I actively think that thought and I assent to it, something like that. Whereas believing is something a little bit more like it's not an event that takes place in my mind. It's not a happening. It's not a thing that I suddenly do. It's rather just a state in me whereby if I were to consider whether my son was a mass murderer, I would go, yeah, he is a mass murderer. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's the tendency that if I were to think about it, I would think it was true. Yeah. I mean, normally when you believe something, when that question arises, you think what you believe. I mean, that's the handy thing about beliefs. You, uh, you already know what to think when the question arises. You don't have to reconsider the question if you already have a belief about it. But if it's something that's really hard to accept, you will interfere with the normal effects of the belief and clutter your mind with alternative thoughts or with thoughts on other subjects or just, I don't want to deal with that and uh, go on to something else. But you'll not uh, directly face up to whatever it is that you believe. I mean, if your self-deception is successful, and it may be to a greater or lesser degree, and gradually over time it might become less and less successful until finally you accept whatever it is. Right. So ordinarily when I believe something that's a matter of indifference to me, like I really don't care one way or the other, I don't have any vested interest in whether or not it's true, yeah, if I believe it, I think it. That's the normal case. What often is a spur to self-deception is when there's something that I believe, but I really wish it wasn't true. I really I, The fact that it's true really upsets me. So as this sort of coping mechanism, I just start thinking about random other things, or I try not to think the opposite, maybe, of this thing that I wish wasn't true. Which yeah, you, you may think of specific uh, instances that support the opposite thing. So even though you have this belief, you might think of some minor, but because you think of them, significant reasons not to except what, in fact, you already believe, or would believe if you let the evidence have its normal effect. And this deals with the paradox of self-deception, because all the while, I haven't necessarily given up my belief that my son is a mass murderer through this whole time. All I'm doing is I'm looking for strategies to avoid thinking about it. Yeah, but basically what you're trying to do is to avoid a certain thought, which means either don't Keep that thought from occurring at all, or if it does occur, make it go away. Nice. So you've argued that having a better understanding of how we make snap judgments is also important for understanding how we communicate. How does our ability to converse with each other rely on our ability to make snap judgments? Well, uh, with, with communication, there's, of course, two sides to it. There's the speaker side, and there's the listener side. And in normal conversation, they take turns. And as I was saying earlier, uh, we generally don't make fully explicit what we mean. I mean, we'd have to spend a lot of time going through concrete examples to really see how this works. I mean, there's an old cliche that it all depends on context. But what is it that depends on context? And what indeed is context in the sense relevant to communicating? First of all, we take for granted that we're trying to communicate. We take for granted that we're speaking the same language. But we also have to rely on some kind of understanding of each other's purposes in engaging in the conversation. 
that brings in all sorts of interpersonal knowledge, knowledge that I have about you, you have about me, and that we have about people in general or people in particular situations, whether it's at a McDonald's or at a bank, at a um, baseball game or whatever it may be. So there are all sorts of things that will constrain the range of possible things that speakers could mean, given that they say what they say. As speakers, we're doing something that in a way is more complicated than what the listener is doing, because we're trying to communicate something, and we have to come up with something to say that will make evident to the listener what we're trying to communicate. And we do that while we're trying to think of how to do it. I'm about to start a sentence, and at the moment, I don't know how that sentence is going to end. Well, it just ended. But I didn't know that it was about to end because I was intending to make it go longer and didn't do that. Try being self-conscious of what you're doing when you speak, and you'll get utterly confused because you will find yourself in a very awkward interaction between what you're thinking and what's coming out of your mouth. That's precisely what normally doesn't occur when we speak. Somehow we're very fluent at it for speaking our native language. We don't have to pay extra close attention to what we're going to say next. We just do it. We do it in such a way that we can make our intentions evident to the person we're talking to. And that person, in turn, is figuring all of that out. Now, if you ask me, how do we do that? I don't know. That's a very complex psychological question, and most of the research on language tends to focus on very specific kinds of cases, and it's impossible to really study full-fledged language use as it occurs in everyday life. So this is another area where our understanding of what really goes on is very limited, even though it's been well-studied. So we've discussed a couple of examples of this general theme of like everyday reasoning that involves snap judgments and how that also crucially involves the ability to figure out what's salient and what isn't and, and ignore the things that aren't salient. Why do you think it's important for philosophers to study this topic? Well, a lot of it goes beyond philosophy, but that doesn't mean it's not important for philosophers to consider it. Uh, I mean, if there's been any theme in philosophy over the past few hundred years is that there's much less that in the mind that meets the eye, mind's eye than philosophers have uh, traditionally supposed, certainly if we go back to Descartes, for example. So let me bring in a distinction that has become very popular in uh, psychological literature, including in a recent bestseller by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. In that book, which I recommend to everybody, he invokes a distinction between System 1 and System 2. But he's very careful to point out that these systems aren't really distinct entities in the head, but are just abstractions from what is in fact a very complicated thing, namely our psychology. System 1 is the fast, intuitive, almost impulsive system. System two is the slow, deliberate system. And a lot of times in the book, even though he denies that these are two really distinct systems that operate somehow on their own, he talks as if they are. 
So on the one hand, they're not really separate autonomous systems, but on the other hand, he treats them to a large extent as if they are. So from my point of view, we should think of them as being in constant interaction, so that to the extent that we're deliberate, we're also relying on our intuitive abilities to bring information to bear when we need it. Kahneman's book tends to emphasize the weaknesses of System 1, our vulnerability to various kinds of statistical errors and uh, cognitive illusions and so on and so forth. And the book is very good at documenting a wide range of these. In my opinion, it would have been interesting if he had at least a chapter or two on all the good things that the System 1 does that straightens us out when our intellectualizing takes us too far afield, or when we fail to take things into account that uh, really are relevant. Oftentimes things come to mind, often when we least expect it, that really are relevant. So there are these processes that go on, which we, as philosophers or psychologists, don't really understand that well, but as ordinary people, we rely on for better or for worse. Kahneman's book tends to emphasize the worse. I'd like to emphasize the better and include both the better and the worse in what we acknowledge as the workings of our subconscious processes of thinking. Kent Bach, I both think and believe that this was a very stimulating discussion, so thank you. I won't dispute that. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.